Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Georgia made history with the recent elections of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to the U.S. Senate. John Ossoff's 2018 congressional run inspired a young adult novel last year, co-authored by Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed. Yes, no, maybe so. Now has an added layer of historic importance since the January election. We'll hear from the authors later this hour. First, the Howard University art historian James A. Porter once said to David Driscoll, you have a good mind, so you can't just be a painter. You're going to have to help define the field and keep the tradition going. David Driscoll was a painter, a curator, author, and scholar who died last April at age 88. He had close ties to the High Museum, and now the High presents his first posthumous show, David Driscoll, Icons of Nature and History. The High Museum's Michael Rooks curated the exhibition. He joins us now via Zoom. Michael, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's so great to be with you again. Would you talk about David Driscoll's relationship with the High? Absolutely. Uh, David has a long history with the High Museum. It actually goes back to 1977, even though he's perhaps best known to our audience and our family from the Driscoll Prize that we uh, have been awarding since 2005. In 1977, David's exhibition, his groundbreaking exhibition, Two Centuries of Black American Art, traveled to the High Museum. And it was the first major exhibition that revealed to the American public the contributions of Black Americans to American visual culture. And the High Museum was one of four venues uh, for that exhibition. It was organized by the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in 1976. And Driscoll curated it. 
And David was the guest curator for that exhibition. Absolutely. Uh, there was a bit of a controversy actually in the organization of that exhibition. And David was selected as the, the guest curator for it by members of LA County Museum. Do tell us about the controversy, Michael. Uh, there were some uh, resignations uh, by staff who objected to an exhibition dedicated to Black Americans, frankly. In 1976? Absolutely. So it shows you how far we've come in nearly 50 years. So David, of course, took the reins and curated a brilliant exhibition that was eye-opening to not only Americans, but to, to, to the world, and revealed that American visual culture includes Black visual culture. It's, it's one of the same. What was his relationship with the high in terms of his own creations? We have a relatively large collection of his work at the High Museum. And David, as an artist, in my experience of David, uh, in my memory of David, uh, such a sweet and generous person, generous in spirit and in every way, was very outspoken as a critic and as a curator and as a scholar. And as an artist, he was quiet. And so I think that's why this exhibition is so important, because so many of us know his enormous contribution to the shaping of Black art American history. But fewer people uh, are familiar with his work as an artist. You know, it's, it's like he put into praxis or he practiced what he preached, essentially. His theory is made visual through his work as an artist. And that's rare, it's incredibly rare to, to find an artist who is both a scholar and academic who can show uh, or rather reveal to his audience uh, how he himself can interpret his own theoretical work. How would you describe Driscoll's style? Uh, I would describe his style as a realist, and he he his style evolved from the late 40s through to the end of his life. He was influenced by a number of different artists who made figurative painting. Uh, for example, Jack Levine is an American social realist uh, with whom Driscoll studied at Skowhegan. And so Levine's work uh, was influenced by the French Fauvist, uh, Jean Trouveau. Uh, very heavy figures, black, dark outlines, dark uh, backgrounds. And so David's early sort of social realist work was inspired by someone like Jack Levine. But his brilliant sense of color came from artists like uh, Lois Melu Jones, with whom he studied at Howard University, and also Morris Lewis, uh, who taught him at Howard University. And two artists who were coming from two different, completely different uh, worlds, uh, Lois Melu Jones from uh, uh, the world of figurative pictorial work and Morris Lewis, a completely abstract work. And so David had this wonderful, these wonderful kind of polar opposite experiences of great artists in history with, from whom he, he learned. Michael, you've talked about how Driscoll endowed his subjects with the kind of frisson like that of an electrical charge. Would you elaborate? For me, if you, when you come to see the exhibition and uh, once we progress past the early work, which is incredibly powerful, but very dark and somber and uh, the tone of the work is uh, subdued, all of a sudden his palette sort of wakes up and uh, there are sort of like between edges of shapes and objects in his work, uh, there are 
uh, areas of color that just seem to be electric. They seem to just uh, uh, emit light. And that is because of his wonderful sense of color and color relationships in his work. And that in turn gives his subjects this kind of energy and, and this, uh, this wonderful sense of presence and urgency as well. I was hoping that you would talk about the significance of the title of the exhibition, Icons of Nature and History. Yeah, the title refers to David's interest in symbolic form. And for him, he, he found symbolic form in, in nature, both as a young man who grew up in West North Carolina, in Appalachia, and uh, also as a young artist who started painting plein air at Skowhegan in Maine. Uh, he eventually built a studio in Falmouth, Maine, and it is a place he returned every year. He built it in 1961 uh, and returns every year to make these wonderful homages to uh, the landscape that surrounded him. Pine trees became uh, a leitmotif in his work. And so as you walk through the exhibition, you'll see in the early work, pine trees uh, uh, are something that he, he adopted early in his career from his experience at Skowhegan as a kind of personal metaphor because pine trees are evergreen and they go through rough patches, you know, in the, in the cold of winter and they thrive in the sunshine and the sun of spring and summer. And so he, I think, thought of pine trees as a kind of a personal metaphor for his own struggle as an artist and also as a Black American. And you see that he makes this connection between pine trees, which are essentially vertical objects with horizontal bars crossing them, limbs, the limbs of the trees are these vertical, vertical axes, that he makes this sort of conceptual leap to the cross, the crucifixion of Christ. And so in the same space, we have uh, his early uh, Black crucifixion paintings starting in 1955 with these pa paintings of pine trees. So you can see that there is this thought process that connects the wonderful, wonderfully spiritual aspect of nature, and also David's uh, mournful paintings of the crucifixion of Christ, which for him was an expression of national uh, suffering and mourning for the murder uh, of Emmett Till in 1955. Anyway, so so there so there you have two different aspects, I, two different icons. You've got nature, the, these pine trees that that were a metaphor, a powerful metaphor for David Driscoll, and then the icon of Christ on the cross, which for him was a, a a powerful icon for salvation for David. This exhibition is massive. You spent seven decades of Driscoll's career. How long was the show in the planning, Michael? I mean, he hasn't even been gone a year. Right. Well, we were hoping that we could celebrate David's 90th birthday uh, with him at the opening of the show. And very sadly, that did not uh, work out. But we've been working on the exhibition with our colleagues at the Portland Museum of Art, who are the co-organizers of the exhibition. And in fact, the curator is Julie McGee, who chronicled David's life uh, earlier in, in a book called David uh, C. Driscoll, uh, Artist and Scholar. So she did the curatorial heavy lifting for the exhibition. And we've all been working on it together for about three or four years. And the exhibition is accompanied by a beautifully illustrated catalog with several contributions, including one by yourself. What was your role in assembling the catalog? 
Most of the contributions to the catalog are in the form of short essays, short appreciations of David uh, as an artist. And my work uh, considers David's artwork uh, from the point of view of his spiritual practice. No doubt you've heard David speak in the past at our Driscoll uh, Prize celebrations and elsewhere. And he spoke like a preacher. It was incredibly motivating and inspirational to hear him speak with such force and such conviction. And uh, in my work for the, for the catalog, I, I try to draw a parallel between his voice as a scholar and an historian and his voice as an artist by suggesting painting for him was an uh, act of liturgy, uh, something that he repeated uh, day after day in the same space with the same tools that for him were uh, in, in a way sacred painting the same trees that, again, for him, were something that was sacred. And he always brought the spiritual into his remarks about art and art history as well. He was not shy about doing that, even though it's not at all fashionable. In fact, we're not supposed to do that <laughs> as art historians. <laughs> Will there be a Driscoll Prize winner for this year? This year, we'll be honoring the previous Driscoll Prize honoree, his name is Jamal Cyrus, uh, a Houston-based artist. Uh, because of uh, the pandemic uh, and because we've uh, been all sheltering in place for a year, uh, we thought it would be appropriate to honor Jamal Cyrus's work in appropriate David Driscoll fashion this year. So will that be in person? Since, since the pandemic, we've always been repraising our plans in terms of access to the museum's collections and our programs. Uh, and so I think that's how we will approach this year's Driscoll Prize celebration. Uh, we'll continue to uh, uh, appraise the situation to see if it is safe and advisable to do that. Michael Rooks, it's clear you are passionate about David Driscoll's art and his contributions to art. Thank you very much. Lois, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. David Driscoll. Icons of Nature and History will be on view at the High Museum February 6th through May 9th. More information about the exhibition will appear on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The New York Times best-selling authors Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed met through their kids. They also wrote a young adult novel together. 
about a Jewish boy and a Muslim girl who meet while canvassing door-to-door for a politician they both believe in, despite being too young to vote themselves. The book is called Yes, No, Maybe So, and was inspired by the author's real-life experiences working on the campaign for now Senator John Ossoff when he ran for Congress in 2018. Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed joined me last year when the book came out. Becky began with how they got the idea for this story. This book has been in the works secretly for a fairly long time. We were definitely inspired by our work canvassing on the 2017 special election in the Georgia 6th District, canvassing for John Ossoff. And for both Aisha and me, it was our first time canvassing. It was way out of our comfort zones. We had no idea what to expect, but we wanted to do something. Like We were just desperate to make a difference. We'd been feeling a little bit lost <laughs> since the 2016 election. The experience of canvassing ended up being so empowering that um, that's definitely where the seeds were planted for the book that would eventually be Yes, No, Maybe So. Now, you are both successful authors. Is it twice as difficult to co-write a book? Oh, I think it's twice as fun to (laughs) write a book. It's twice as amazing. I think, to be fair, I I wouldn't co-write a book with just anyone. There's a lot of factors that go into it because you're going to be engaging in a very intimate experience with somebody working on a book from the start to finish. And so Becky and I, we've been friends for a long time, since 2015, and uh, we have kids the same age. We have a lot in common, and we're big fans of each other's work. So when we began canvassing and started getting into that process, this idea kind of organically sprang between us. And I can easily say this is the first co-written book I've ever done. And it has been the best experience of my life to have someone invested in the characters the same way you are, who knows everything before the world does, who knows the plot developments, the characters, and falls in love with them with you. It's it's such an incredible experience. Yeah, it was a blast. We were very much like a fandom of two for this book <laughs> before anybody ever knew about it. Like we were shipping our own characters very hard and it made it so much fun. It just um, was a special, really wonderful experience from start to finish. Well, it's a fun read and Thank intense, you. intense at parts. Let's talk about the structure of the book. How does the story unfold for the reader? We start the story off with... Jamie, who is written by Becky, and he is actually not that against politics or political campaigns. His family has some backstory and history with it. His cousin is the assistant campaign manager in the satellite office for this local state Senate election, and he's been helping phone banking, doing all sorts of things, but he doesn't want to canvas. And Maya, who I wrote, she is going through a lot in the story. It's summer. It's Ramadan, so she's fasting. And her parents have just announced that they're splitting up. And her best friend, who she talks to about everything, isn't around because she's getting ready to go to college. And her head is just full of all the things she needs to do to go to college. And so the story is structured around these two teens who meet at a mosque during an iftar fundraiser for this local candidate. 
And it follows what happens when their mothers decide, hey, you both should take up canvassing. That's a great summer activity for both of you to do. And as they go, we see all the different things, how it goes from being about one thing, doing something that their parents have pushed them to do, to becoming something very personal to them. And each chapter is told from the viewpoint of the character, Jamie, chapter one, Maya, chapter two. And at a certain point in the book, we get their takes on the same experience. So how did that work out in terms of division of labor? It seems like putting a puzzle together, was it? This is actually my second co-written project. So I did a book with Adam Silvera called What If It's Us that came out in 2018. And we ended up following a very similar process um, because it worked so well for What If It's Us. And I think it worked really well for us, too, where we sat down together and developed a pretty detailed outline together. And we certainly ended up deviating from that outline somewhat. But just like all the story beats and just the whole development of the plot and the heart of the story was all stuff that we collaborated on together at the front end. Going into it, we each knew we were going to write one of the two point of view characters. Aisha was always going to write Maya, who is a 17-year-old Muslim Pakistani-American girl. I was always going to write Jamie, who is a white Ashkenazi Jewish boy. And we were able to kind of bring a lot of our own (laughs) cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds into the story and into these characters. So we basically started with that outline and went chapter by chapter, um, made sure we knew what was going to be happening in each chapter, and then kind of stepped back for a second, wrote the chapter, sent it to each other. Then we live texted our reactions, (laughs) which is like really fun. And also like, it was just a cool experience. It's very hard to trust somebody with your first draft. So it's like a very intimate, creative experience. We had to get each other's voices pretty well. You know, I had to write dialogue for Maya, who is Aisha's character, and it had to be convincing uh, as Maya speaking, even from Jamie's point of view, if that makes sense. Yes, it does, and intricate. Jamie is self-conscious. He's shy. And yet early on, we learned that he wants to be a history changer. How do the situations in this story help him to overcome his lack of self-confidence? I think of him, I think pretty early on, we made the connection between Jamie and Neville Longbottom from Harry Potter. Like, he's a little bit of a Neville Longbottom. For those who don't know Harry Potter. So for those who don't know Harry Potter, the kind of type of person that I'm thinking of is somebody who is very brave at heart and just has pretty strong convictions, but they don't necessarily believe that they're brave. Uh, Jamie doesn't think of himself as brave, and his convictions are buried under a lot of anxiety, I think. So he is really passionate and becomes more passionate about these causes that he is working toward. But for him, a lot of the growth has to come from basically being pushed into it and like realizing he can do it and finding a way to do that that works for him. He, you know, his anxiety doesn't go away by the end of the book. He is who he is, but he's able to work within that and find a type of activism that feels good for him. 
And Maya is not political when we meet her, but she evolves she quite does. a bit. How does her involvement in the campaign help her grow? Maya's just going through a lot, and I think her mother hopes that it's a form of distraction, something for her to do to get her mind off of all the different changes that are happening. But as she's going through it, I think she discovers that she does have a voice and that what she does can actually make an impact. She starts seeing it when she knocks on doors and people actually take the brochure or the walk piece from her and realize, oh, there's an election coming. That's an experience Becky and I both had when we were knocking on doors of just that one person, because of us, might go out and vote. And as the book goes on, there's a discriminatory bill that's about to get passed in the state house. And that really throws Maya for a curve. Suddenly, it's not just about electing somebody. It's also about the future of her family living here in Georgia, this discriminatory bill would be banning hijab. And there actually have been bills like that in real life. And so suddenly she has something that she truly tangibly wants to fight for, to fight for this bill. Because her mother wears yes. a hijab. Right. Stepping back a moment, we encounter Target so often <laughs> in this story. The store itself feels like a character. <laughs> Now, Jamie describes Target as the definition of his comfort zone. <laughs> Becky, you were last here right after the premiere of the movie Love, Simon, which was based on your popular young adult novel. And during our interview, I asked you about walking the red carpet and... I imagined you wearing some kind of sequined gown for this Hollywood premiere. And you proudly remarked that you wore a dress you bought at Target. So I thought about that with every mention of Target in this book. Aisha, does Target have the same sentimental place in your heart. Oh, we're so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> Why Target? We're suburban moms from Atlanta. Like, we love Target. <laughs> and our kids actually love Target. See. And, you know, I think that between both of us, we probably go there every day on average. <laughs> it's always something you need. And I don't remember exactly how Target became so big in the book, except that I feel like the love for Target is a very Atlanta thing. I know sometimes when Target comes up in panels that I do, somehow people light up. They're like, we love Target too. So I feel like we love Target so much that we even hung out in that patio section that Maya and Jamie connect at to go over plot points, to get inspired. Um, we See, I'm <laughs> picturing all this when the movie is made. <laughs> yes, no, maybe. So, and I think... Target is going to be very happy. <laughs> yeah, I promise they're not paying us. <laughs> I know, like this, this book is like made of pure suburban mom Target love, and it's not a paid ad. <laughs> Our protagonists are brought together as they work on the political campaign. Who is the candidate, and why is he important to the characters in this story? Well, the candidate is a guy named Jordan Rossum. People, I think, especially in the 6th District, but local people from Atlanta may recognize aspects of 
Rossum. He's very much inspired by John Ossoff, who we love, and, and we were so inspired by his campaign. And if you were following that election, you know um, that John Ossoff didn't win. But what he did was really incredible. Like, if you grew up in the 6th District, like I did, you know what a big deal it was that he came that close. And of course, the 6th District did ultimately flip in 2018. Um, and Aisha and I are now represented by uh, Congresswoman Lucy McBath, who is the first Democrat in decades. So I think there's a lot of homage to John Ossoff in this character of Rossum, who is a young, Jewish, earnest, charismatic guy. When characters are criticizing him, it's usually because he's young. He's very like legitimately passionate about the issues that Maya and Jamie care about. And I think that really means something to them. And and in this book, there's a part where as they're getting ready to canvas, Maya has a sudden thought, who is this guy? Who is he really? We're canvassing for him. He's a Democrat. But who is he? What exactly does he stand for? And then, you know, they look into him and, and he seems great, but still Maya's not fully convinced. And then they look up the other guy and they realize, oh, well, that's somebody we definitely don't want in office. Would you talk about your choice of names? Jordan Rossum. Rossum is awesome. <laughs> Great campaign slogan. And indeed, he is very much the spirit of John Ossoff in how engaging he is and inspiring, especially to young people. Yeah, believe it or not, it was less subtle in the first draft. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was Jordan Awesome, right? <laughs> yeah, we just called him Jordan Awesome with like an O. Oh, okay. <laughs> And our editor was like, hmm, it's a little too on the nose there. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are, okay, let's talk about yeah. the other names. Newton, clearly Newt, correct? <laughs> Maybe. We just came up with the names. Uh, okay, Governor yeah. Doyle <laughs> is not deal. I mean, in a lot of this book, the names and some of the situations are a little bit ripped from the headlines sometimes. Um, there's not anything that tracks 100% with any real person. Right. I do think it's really important to emphasize some of these very real dynamics, like with Governor Doyle in the book, that character who we, don't, we never meet like in person in the book, but he is... One of those kind of business-oriented Republicans. He's not one of those Trumpian kind of populist Republicans. He um, is similar to um, Governor Deal, and that ends up being important for the plot because somebody who is coming from that perspective is going to make political decisions a little bit differently. And we wanted to at least try to tap into some of those nuances mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that we could. Bowser mm -hmm. is not a name that has any uh, resemblance to who I think he is. How did you decide on Bowser? <laughs> There's some video game analogies. Bowser is the big bad in um, Mario Brothers. So he becomes an analogy because in the Mario Brothers games, uh, he's the one that once you defeat Bowser, then you've won the game. But along the way to get to Bowser, there's lots of other creatures that you have to get through. And so that felt like a very fitting analogy for our current times. Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed are the co-authors of Yes, No, Maybe So, 
We'll return to our conversation after a short break. You are listening to City Lights on member-supported 90.1 WABE Atlanta. You're listening to City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining us. Let's return to my conversation with the authors Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed. Their book, Yes, No, Maybe So, tells the story of a Jewish boy and a Muslim girl who meet while canvassing door-to-door for an idealistic young politician they both believe in, despite being too young to vote themselves. The character of the young politician was inspired by John Ossoff. Here's Aisha Saeed telling us about the role of Atlanta itself in the story. For me, there's um, Jacqueline Woodson is an author that I really admire. She writes lots of children's books. And she said one time about Brown Girl Dreaming, which is about her experience growing up in the South and moving to New York City. She said that specificity leads to universality. So being specific can help a reader connect in a very unique way. So even if I didn't grow up the way that Jacqueline Woodson did, I recognize so much of myself in her specific story. And so that's what we, I think, were aiming to do. We wanted to write a story that was very specific and very personal, but even within that specificity of it being in Atlanta, suburban targets, and all of that, Jamie has anxiety. He struggles with what he wants to do with his life and whether he can do it. Maya is struggling with a family separation, a friendship that might be ending. Those are all universal emotions. So even though the specifics of the story are quite specific to Atlanta and to this local state election, the feelings and the emotions are universal. There are religious references in each of your characters' narratives. Jamie's family is preparing for his sister's bat mitzvah, and he gets stuck with lots of the chores surrounding that (laughs) event. Poor Jamie. (laughs) Poor Jamie, indeed. Maya and her family are observing Ramadan, and it's the first time for her that her father isn't living at home for Ramadan. Some of the words are not explained. Some of those religious and cultural references, the Hamotzi, a Hebrew prayer, Iftar. Would you explain? So I think growing up, all the books that I read as a kid were about white children and white-based mainstream American stories in that regard. And there were often things I didn't recognize or understand that weren't part of my tradition. We don't celebrate Christmas. Sometimes as a kid, I would read certain practices or celebrations on Christmas Eve and wouldn't necessarily know what they meant. And I figured it out. I figured out through the context. I think that it's intentional um, that we don't need to explain these things. And I think Now, fast forward to 2020, Google exists. So if anything is complicated, we can also look it up. But I wanted the story, and I think, Becky, you could probably agree, the story is for everyone, and the story is also for our respective religious groups to feel seen and understood. And I think excessive explanation can often otherize a story because when other writers write stories that are more 
the best word to describe it is more mainstream, that we read more about. There's not explanations. Tolkien invented his own language and didn't really provide much context, but we figured it out. And so that was intentional on my part. Yeah. Well, and I think another thing that is really cool about this process that ended up being an opportunity for us to navigate this, and I don't think this is necessary in a book to have these sorts of explanations, but because it's a dual point of view book and each character is an outsider to the other's religion, hopefully, you know, the reader has the opportunity, if they want, to position themselves with the character who is learning about the other religion in in that moment. And our readers may be an outsider. Probably many of our readers are going to be outsiders to both characters' religions. It was really fun to work on this book because I learned so much just about Islam, but also in particular what it means to Aisha, um, which is very similar to kind of... And I felt the same way um, with your story and writing Jamie's story. You are also addressing such topics as social media and its exploitation, peer approval, divorce, sexual orientation, serious subjects. How do you strike the proper tone the authentic voice of this age group? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's certainly a question that is on the mind of every YA author, I would say, because whatever genre you're writing in, if you are writing uh, for this age group, authenticity is the number one most important thing. It can be hard to capture that voice. And also, no author's version of a teen voice is going to work for everyone. And that's even true if the author is a teen, and there are a few. What feels authentic to one reader might feel a little bit off to another reader just based on their own experiences and their own filters. But I think a couple of the elements that have felt really important to us are not ever talking down to our readers. We aren't trying to overly intellectualize to like dazzle anybody with how smart we are as authors. I don't think that necessarily works for a character, a first person point of view character voice. But we aren't trying to overly explain things. I certainly don't write imagining an audience of children, even though some of the kids who uh, read our books can be quite young. How young? I've certainly had as young as nine or 10, which is a little more rare. Most, I would say, are 11 or older. Your target is 14 Um, to 18? I think that's the young adult category's definition is 14 and up. I would say 12. For me, I would say 12. (laughs) I mean, it it really depends on the kid. Aisha, you've you've written, though, for younger audiences than I have. Yeah, yeah. Amal Unbound was for younger. Yeah. Yeah. Although I loved it. (laughs) Thank you. I'm not that age. And I and I was also going to add to that that I think we both, Becky and I, have talked about how our teenage years, those emotional memories are still very strong in us. A lot of YA authors um, have talked about how those teen years have stuck with us. And I think that's part of what drives us to write young adult is because those memories, the heartbreaks, the angst, the change that comes, there's so much change happening during your teenage years. I still remember all of that vividly. It's still with me. And so... I think those things are timeless, those emotions that you go through during adolescence. Well, I'm impressed being 
several years removed from 17 that each of you are. You mentioned you are mothers of young children, but you do remember these feelings, romantic feelings, so vividly. You're writing for teenagers. Would you talk about including text messages as part of the narrative? Text messages are complicated because they're important. That is how many of us communicate. I communicate with almost everyone except my mom on a regular basis on uh, on text messages. And so it was important to be true to the story that the teens text. And that that came pretty easily. But I think the formatting of it for a readership, it definitely, because there's emojis they use. And so it was important that we have those in there. And so I think for the longest time we had like Maya might text and then we have insert shocked emoji or insert awkward face emoji. And so (laughs) I think it was really important to have texting in it, but it definitely was something that did require extra attention to make sure that it flowed for the reader and didn't feel um, jarring or clunky. The book also presents religious tolerance in a way that may surprise some readers. We've established, Becky, you're Jewish. Aisha, you are Muslim. Is the acceptance, the embrace of these characters by each other's families and friends idealized for the story? Or is it more widespread in real life than many of us may imagine? I think we were very intentional about, um, you know, just the way these Jewish and Muslim characters interacted with each other, to what extent, if at all, that ever became an issue between them. And I think a lot of that comes from Aisha and I being very aware of the way our two religious groups in particular can be pitted against each other by the media. We see that a lot. There is a lot of pain that ends up sometimes being focused on each other when in reality we think of these two groups as very similar. There's like a ton of common ground. Yeah, there were so many times when we were writing, I'm like, oh, well, we, we do that too. Or, you know, it was so many times that that would happen. Yeah. So. Both Abrahamic religions. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> And I and it's it is frustrating because I like Becky said the narrative has is very often in the media that oh Jewish and Muslim communities don't get along but right here in Atlanta there are so many interfaith groups I believe there's one called JAMA and they're Jewish Americans and Muslim Americans who get together regularly and have meetings and discuss I am part of the Roswell Community Masjid RCM and. They have regular interfaith outreach and deep connections with other Jewish communities in Atlanta. It is not the reality that I've seen or Becky has seen, but it's definitely one that's promoted as a narrative. And and we reject that. And and that is important part of the book is explaining what we have seen and what our reality has been between our two faiths. Well, may it be exemplary. In the end, how have Jamie and Maya grown. They both find their voice. And I think that's not a spoiler um, because I think this story is an exploration of finding your voice. And um, I think they find their voice and they find out that they both find out different things. Maya's always afraid of change. And she finds out that sometimes change is important and necessary and good. And I guess you can speak to it. Jamie finds out. 
Yeah, you know, I think Jamie feels like he is not up to the task of what needs to be done. And and kind of the big goals that he has uh, for changing the world just seem very out of reach for him, especially at age 17. We were very intentional about making these characters too young to vote. And so I think one of the things that was really important to us um, was by the end of the story, there are some high moments for them and there are some lower moments for them. But I think we just wanted them to feel empowered. There are some younger characters. There are some middle school age supporting characters. And we wanted them to be empowered, too, because so much of what's happening in the world affects even people who are unable to vote and unable to vote in U.S. elections. Like, in particular, our politics affect people all over the world who are not able to vote in our elections, and they absolutely affect people in the U.S. who are not able to vote for many reasons, but including because they are too young to vote. So one of the takeaways of this book is just because you may not be of voting age yet doesn't mean you can't have an impact. Teens reached out to us to say, this inspired me. I think I'm going to do something for this 2020 election coming up. That has meant everything to us. Authors Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed, their young adult book, Yes, No, Maybe So, now has an added layer of historic importance since the election of Georgia Senator John Ossoff. We'll hear from an impressive politician next on WABE Atlanta. What does it mean to be American? That's a question Deval Patrick asks each guest on his new podcast series. The former governor of Massachusetts interviews a wide range of artists, activists, and thinkers on being American. He joined me in December and began with some of the things he's learned so far. Well, it seems to me that in these divided and divisive times, there are conversations uh, about common values that are enormously difficult to have in a campaign and, um, and harder and harder to have in politics, sadly. But there is so much uncommon wisdom I found out and about, not just from the famous, but the as yet discovered. Many folks doing, you know, as my grandmother would say, all the good they can in all the ways they can with all the time they have. And they have insights, I think, into where we are as a country and where we're going and how we can begin, I think, over time to see how much of what uh, ails us from community to community and individual to individual is in common. And if that's so, some of the solutions that we have to think about, I think, um, can also be thought about as unifying themselves. A recent episode of your podcast features the ballerina Misty Copeland. This was riveting. She was the first African-American woman to be promoted to principal dancer for American Ballet Theater. What struck you most about 
her rise to success? Her bravery, I think. It's obvious, I suppose, to, to anyone who is interested in dance that her skill is extraordinary. Her grace combined with her athleticism. She is a show-stopping talent and so much fun. And there's so much joy that she exudes when you're sitting in the audience watching her perform, which I've had an opportunity to, to do maybe twice in my, uh, in my life. But it's not until you really appreciate how much, uh, not just how much work goes into becoming a principal, but how staked the odds are against you if you are Black, particularly in classical ballet, not all dance, but classical ballet. And Christy talks about this, Ms. Copeland talks about this in the podcast, you know, what constitutes a body type for classical ba ballet and who gets to say and why and the presumptions against you. And of course, then she started, I think, in her teens. Yeah, she said she didn't start till she was 13. Right, right. And here's something that I don't think we touched on the podcast, but she was on point three months after starting her uh, ballet lessons. It takes years for most trained dancers to uh, go up on point. Three months. It's extraordinary. She surely was a prodigy. I loved in that episode where you mentioned the governor, Doug Wilder, introducing you as the first African-American governor of Massachusetts. And he said, you quote him saying, being first doesn't mean a thing unless there's a second. And the pressure that was on Misty Copeland for being the first to achieve what she has as prima ballerina, you'd think would be burdensome. But in your conversation, she carries it off with the same grace she shows on stage. That, I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear you say that came through. I, I think um, she was very clear about the pressure she was under or the high expectations she had or it's actually a combination of high expectations of herself by herself and low expectations around her, that there were limits on the expectations other had, others had that she would have to surmount. But I think there was a, a part of her conversation, where, of that conversation, where she talked about the aftermath within the company of the George Floyd videotaped killing and how intimate and supportive she discovered in some ways her colleagues were of her. So it was, a, I think, in some ways an auspicious time to be having that kind of conversation with her about her rise to this height. I loved that what came out of that conversation also was how being a good observer served her so beautifully, although the way she told it, she was so painfully shy. People thought she was mute. Mm, how about that? How about that? But, you know, this is a, an inartful thing to say to a radio host, but I, th I think to myself sometimes how rich 
is our experience when we stop talking and just listen. Listen in the conversations that we're having with each other, but also just listening to others interact. Just what you learn, how you, um, it's not all content. Some of it is tone and touch. Some of it is grace and meanness. But you learn things about human interaction, which I think make life richer. And I think that's what Misty was trying to get across. You talk about finding common values during uncommon times when you open the podcast. A recurring theme is the importance of community. And and you've talked about growing up in a multi-generational household on a block where kids played outside and everyone looked out for each other. How do we find community now? You know, the community we need isn't, it may be informed by past experience, but as I think about it, it's not about nostalgia, which is to say the the lesson from the from the South Side that I got from the old ladies in hats in church and the folks on the stoop who, who treated you like you were theirs is that, um, well, two, two lessons really. One is that community is understanding you have a stake in your neighbor's dreams and struggles just as they do in yours. And that um, secondly, it's up to you, all of you, all of us, to do what we can in our time to leave things better for those who came behind us. Those are ancient lessons. Every single one of us learned those from our grandparents. Former governor of Massachusetts, the Honorable Deval Patrick. His podcast, Being American, is available on all major streaming platforms. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Kinevy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can find our archived stories at wabe.org slash City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.